All right, good to see you all this morning. Um, this message is brought to you in association with Hall's Menthol uh, Honey and Lemon uh, Throat Lozenges. Um, <laughs> a number of us were at um, Max and Chelsea Garza's wedding yesterday. I can say that now for, for official. Um, uh, but it was on the beach, and it was, man, it was windy. So I was shouting my uh, guts out to try and get to the back of that crowd, and now you're going to suffer for it, I'm afraid. So um, just bear with me with the croakiness this morning. Um, we are back in the Psalms for our last um, Psalms message before we hit our new thing for the fall, um, which is going to be Matthew. Um, and Rod and I are really excited about um, taking us as a congregation into um, the Gospels again. We're going to work our way through the entire book of Matthew through the fall and into the spring. Um, and it's going to give quite a lot of opportunities for bringing some of the insights out of the Israel trip. So I'm going to be slipstreaming Rod with that stuff um, But um, we'd really encourage you to start getting your noses into Matthew over the next week. Um, Particularly, um, just read the first couple of chapters um, and see just how that feels, get a feel for that book, because we're going to be living in that as a church for a little while now. But um, today we're still in the Psalms. We're in Psalm 103, so we're going to start that right now. So I wonder um, what each of our vision is for spending daily time with God For some of us, I imagine that whole thing might seem a little bit kind of old school um, because it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible, does it, that we have to spend 15 minutes every morning in a Joyce Meyer devotional um, or whatever it was our parents did. And so um, sometimes that can all seem a bit legalistic, can't it? So perhaps we've grown up with a more kind of freewheeling approach uh, where we just, can you turn the mic down just a little bit? Thanks. Um, uh, Where we just kind of, uh, take it as it comes, wait for the Spirit's leading to take our Bible down from the shelf. Um, or maybe time with God is something that we've kind of subcontracted out. Uh, maybe that's actually one of the reasons, kind of deep down inside, why we come to church or maybe why we stick a, uh, a worship CD on in the car. Maybe time with God is something that we hope other people can create on our behalf. But as I've been studying Psalm 103 this week, I guess that tendency in my own life has been really challenged because the psalm teaches us that ultimately the time that we spend with God isn't anybody else's responsibility other than ours. I don't think we can or should ask our church or our worship leaders or Joyce Meyer for that matter uh, to take charge of our spiritual development. Jesus didn't die to uh, make us kind of spiritual wards of court where we can only approach our new parent through an intermediary. Jesus died to bring us into the family home. Jesus died to win for us the supreme privilege of knowing and pursuing God ourselves, discovering what he has to say to us for ourselves. And if we understand that privilege, really, uh, we also understand that we need to do something about it ourselves. No one could be a son or daughter for us. If we're sons and daughters, we need to act like it. Uh, And Psalm 103 is going to give us a great insight into what that looks like. So let's stand together and read this great psalm. I'm going to read the whole thing, just starting at the start here. Psalm 103, a psalm of David. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals 
all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we're dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Let's sit and I'll pray. God, as we get going with this psalm, we're going to find David intended to lead his people in worship. And I pray, God, that across this span of 3,000 years from when this psalm was first written, Lord, that he might still speak by your spirit, leading us in worship. Bring us to your throne, Lord God, and teach us, teach us as men and women to come before you, to invest in this amazing relationship with you that you have made possible. Lord God, if we don't yet know it, give us a thirst for it. Give us a desire to come in. And God, for those of us who've been there for many years, reawaken, strengthen our love and our desire for you. Lord, help us to go away from here with things that we know that we can do and change that will help us be more effective in your service, more effective worshippers, more effective ambassadors for you in this world. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay. So, Psalm 103. First thing that um, I want us to notice about this psalm uh, that we have in front of us here this morning is that it begins and ends with the same phrase. Did you see that? Praise the Lord, my soul. Why? Normally, that kind of phrase is uh, the sort of thing that we say when we want to issue an instruction to someone, isn't it? You know, uh, wash the dishes, Jack. Run to the store, Jill. Uh, But David is... uh, Issuing an instruction to himself here. He says, praise the Lord, my soul. It's a little bit strange, isn't it? Why does David do that? Well, one thing we can be sure about to start with is that it's not uncharacteristic. Actually, in the very next psalm, if you just look over at it, Psalm 104, he begins and ends 
with exactly the same uh, phrase. The same thing happens in Psalm 146. In Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, David also talks to his soul, encouraging it not to be downcast. In Psalm 57, he encourages his soul to wake up. In Psalm 116, he encourages his soul to return to rest. So um, we can see straight away that this is not some kind of slip of the pen on David's part here, can't we? He habitually speaks to his own soul, by which he means his whole being, his mind, his heart, his will. And he encourages it to do various things. Now, it's important for us to notice that because in these, uh, in uh, this uh, psalm here, David is providing us with a model to follow in our own lives. I wonder whether you remember that from our King series when we went through and kind of developed a, a list of rules about how to read a, a Bible character like David here in the text. You might remember um, because David is a king, um, we have to take some care here when he's playing his kingly role, when he's reigning and ruling over his people. He functions as a kind of model or picture of the king that God has set over us, King Jesus. But when we see him simply acting as a kind of regular believer, as a man on his knees before God, seeking God, pouring out his heart to God, um, then he functions as a kind of model or picture of us. And that's what's happening here in the first few verses of this psalm. David is showing us how we can come before God and how we can pour out our souls to him. And the model that he provides for us here is one of talking to yourself. Why? Well, the answer is right there in verse 2 of the text. David encourages his soul to praise God because he realizes that he's in danger of forgetting all of the benefits of knowing God. David has enough self-awareness, doesn't he, to see that his spiritual life is wearing just a little bit thin. He's um, got his eye on the kind of internal spiritual dashboard and he can see a, a warning light flashing, appreciation of God's goodness running low. Miles still empty in the single digits. (laughs) So David takes action. He steps in and he talks to himself. Now Mike Bartlett touched on this idea a couple of months ago in his sermon on Ephesians 3. And he pointed us to a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that I want to return to here. Because he really aces this. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself and not talking to yourself. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. What Martin Lloyd-Jones is describing there, and what David is practicing in the psalm, is kind of the, uh, the art of self-management, the art of taking responsibility for your own walk with God. The art of not subcontracting out your spiritual health and maybe blaming someone or something else when things reach a low ebb, but instead actively looking after your walk with God, making sure that you're getting fed and uh, taking steps to keep things on track. That's what David is doing here. Instead of just listening to himself and uh, hearing discouragement, you know all the kinds of things that our souls say to us when we give them the chance. You know, you aren't half so close to God as you used to be. God doesn't seem to be answering your prayers. You might not even be a Christian. No, instead of that, David turns around and he speaks to his own soul. 
And he reminds himself of what he wants to be. He says to his soul, hey, what about all the good things that God has done for you? Haven't you decided in the past to be the kind of person who's really intentional about remembering them? So where is all that now? I'm not just going to sit here listening to all this discouraging nonsense until I've seen you weigh it all up against the blessings that you've received. So you see, instead of being managed by his emotions, waiting till he feels like he's ready to praise God again, or until someone can create that feeling for him, David uses praise itself to get his emotions under control. He refuses to be the passenger. He's going to praise his way back to health spiritually. And that's his model for us. If we want to have a healthy, lively walk with God, we need to get into the game in the same way ourselves. So how does he begin here? Well, David begins this process of taking charge of his own spiritual situation by conducting a kind of personal audit of all of the ways that God has uh, uh, blessed him in the past. And it's not complicated. He just follows that good old piece of advice, count your blessings one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. He starts in verse 3 by remembering that God forgave him his sins. Now, I don't know exactly when David wrote this psalm. We can't work it out from the text. Uh, So we can't be exactly sure what sins he has in mind here. The big one would obviously be his adultery with Bathsheba and his subsequent murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Um, We do see him bringing that situation before God very explicitly in some of the psalms. But whether or not David has that whole thing in mind here, the broader truth is that David was never a perfect man. And the Bible doesn't set out to convince us that he was. There are plenty of uh, other places in his life where he must have felt the need for forgiveness just like we do. He was hasty. His fatherhood left a lot to be desired. I can relate to all of that. But his experience looking back was one of forgiveness. David knew what it looked like to continue to be treated as one of God's friends, even when he had behaved like one of God's enemies. Not because of short-sightedness or indifference on God's part, but because of God's amazing promise. I will make a way where there is no way. I will provide the sacrifice. I will pay the price that you owe. And as I look at my own life, I recognize that too. I don't know about you. That's one of the reasons I think why I love this psalm so much. I can see in my own experience that God has treated me as a friend when he should have treated me as an enemy. But I didn't always see that. I remember for quite a few years as a young Christian, although I knew that I was supposed to feel a sense of uh, just remorse for the sins that I committed, I'll be honest and say that I just didn't really see the connection to my own life at all. I don't know whether any of you uh, there and can relate to that. It just all seemed a little bit over the top to me. I couldn't really relate to it. Because I came from a nice background, I'd never really done anything particularly outrageous. But in my late teens, I remember I started uh, asking God quite deliberately to show me what it was that he had in mind with all of this talk of sin that I saw in the Bible. And then I really did start to see it. And on reflection, I think that was one of the major turning points in my walk with God. Because as Jesus says, he who has been forgiven little loves little, but he who has been forgiven much or finally realizes that they've been forgiven much, well, then that person loves much. I started to see how thankless I was 
for the basic gifts of life, just for health, for basic abilities, for family, for friendship. I started to see how unconcerned I was, frankly, for the things that deeply concern God. I started to see how selfish I was in my relationships with other people, how impatient, how defensive. And I started thinking, look what God is doing in your life, Neil. Look how he's still walking with you. Look how dependent you are every day on his forgiveness. Look how much he has to pay for, even to make this possible. Look how much he's willing to forget. And that put things in their proper perspective. It finally made me thankful. And when I take the trouble to look back and remind myself what God has done like David did, guess what? Suddenly it reawakens all of that thankfulness. And that's where I need to be. That's kind of the start line for authentic Christian living. So I need a dose of David's medicine here pretty regularly. Next, David focuses on the times in his past when he experienced healing. Did you see that? And we all have experiences of uh, healing too, don't we? Has anyone here ever been sick? Yeah, all right, a few of us. It's good. Uh, In fact, some of us have been quite seriously sick. But are we all feeling sick this morning? No, not everyone. And there's a reason for that, isn't there? That's what David is concentrating on here. He's reminding us that the experiences of sickness we have in the past are, for most of us, in the past. They ended in recovery. Bless God. And I don't think he's limiting himself just to uh, kind of miraculous healings. You know, we find it easy to concentrate on the kind of healings where the doctors have given up all hope and then suddenly at a word of prayer, suddenly the whole thing just disappears. And that's wonderful when it happens. But if we think that those are the only kinds of healings where the God of the Bible is involved, I've got a newsflash for you. We have way too small a view of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible made and sustains the entire universe. Note that he sustains it. That means that everything that happens in it happens because he enables it to happen. Our bodies don't stay healthy by their own inherent power. They stay healthy because every second of every day, God wills them to be healthy. And the basic regular processes of life, not just the miracles, but all of the well-understood stuff too, our metabolism, our immune systems, all of those processes are tools in God's hands to put that will into practice. In fact, I think that in God's mind, that distinction that we draw between uh, miraculous things and mechanistic things is almost totally irrelevant. It's a big deal to us, but it means really nothing to God. makes no difference to him at all whether we have understood the processes by which he works. It's like, great, well done, but I understood it all anyway. (laughs) So David encourages us here to look back at our past experiences of illness and to remember what they felt like and how debilitated we were by them and then to thank God that he has made and oversees a world in which sickness can be reversed in which pain can give way to comfort, where tiredness can give way to energy, where decay decay can give way to new life, because that's his handiwork to do that, and he deserves our praise for it. Next, David thanks God for redeeming his life from the pit. And here, I guess, I certainly can't help be reminded of Psalm 40, uh, where David writes this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place 
to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in him. In that, in that uh, section, Psalm 40, David pictures a time in his life that felt like being trapped in a slimy pit. He's probably thinking of one of the many no-win situations that he found himself in when he was being pursued by Saul or when he was fighting against Israel's Canaanite neighbors. But whatever the specific details, David remembers it as a slippery, treacherous situation. A situation where he was trapped, where he couldn't get a foothold. And he couldn't free himself. But in that situation, he cried out to God and God heard him. And this is what the answer felt like when it came. It felt like having his feet set on the rock. Suddenly he had a place to push off from. Suddenly he felt that whatever the difficulties around him, he was stable because God had him in his hands. And in our psalm, David is still counting those blessings, maybe years after they happened. And we can do the same, can't we? Because I imagine many of us have experiences like that in our past. And that stuff is fuel now for our praises in the present. Because this is what being a child of this great God is like, isn't it? This is what it's like knowing right here today, the same God that this ancient uh, Near Eastern king knew 3,000 years ago. God makes a way where there is no way. I find it so easy to forget that, but some of the most defining experiences of my life have been that reality. God meets his people in situations where they feel like their feet are slipping and he changes the game. And the slipperiness is gone. He gives us the stability uh, from which to push off uh, a stable place to stand. Next, David tells us that God crowned his life with love and compassion. And that's kind of a striking picture, isn't it? Think of that being crowned with love and compassion. Because David is a king, right? And I think pretty much any other human king who's ever walked the earth, if it even crossed their mind to thank God at all would have said here, thank you, God, for crowning my life with the crown. Yeah? (laughs) But not David. So you can see the good that talking to himself is already doing to him. Concentrating on what God has done for him made David realize that he had so much more important things to thank God for than just his royal position. David wanted to thank God for the love and compassion that made him one of God's children In the first place, that was the most important thing when he really thought about it. And we can relate to that too, can't we? We might think that thanking God is all about having great successes and mounted top moments in the rearview mirror. You know, things that we can return to and relive, maybe rather like, I guess, the Olympic athletes do now now that they've come home. But David shows us a different way here. David encourages us to reflect on the quieter, more everyday experiences of walking with God, with a God who loves us beyond all reasonable proportions and whose compassion is evident in every detail of his faithfulness to us. And as we turn those more fundamental things into thanks, we start to realize like David did that they are really the crown of our lives. Those are the things that really cut it. And then in verse five, to kind of round out this list of personal thanks, David looks back at the way that God has shaped and worked with his desires during the time that he's known him. And once again, it's a cause for thankfulness. Our desires, of course, are not bad things in and of themselves, are they? The desire to be loved, uh, the desire to make a valuable contribution to the world, uh, the desire for beauty, all of those things are part of God's image in us. But our tendency as fallen human beings 
is to feed those desires with junk. As James puts it in the New Testament, we're dragged away by our desires. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. But David looks back on a very different experience in his life. By God's grace, he knows the difference between having his desires fed and having his desires satisfied. By God's grace, David looks back on a life in which, by and large, he knew what it was like to have the junk that he would have fed his desires with replaced by the good things for which those desires were always intended. He likens his experience to that of an eagle having its youth renewed, which all sounds a little bit odd at first, doesn't it? Did David believe that eagles were like phoenixes somehow, uh, you know, reaching the end of their lives and then being reborn from the ashes? Certainly, actually, there's some evidence in the, in the ancient world that uh, those civilizations really did believe that eagles were regenerated at the end of their lives. Uh, but the reason for it is probably a bit more prosaic than the whole uh, spontaneous combustion thing. Uh, let me show you. Eagles go through an annual, an annual molt. Progressively through the year, their flight feathers degrade to the point where they kind of drop out and uh, they need to be replaced by new ones. And so if you bump into an eagle on a bad hair day, like this one here, um, <laughs> it looks kind of tatty, right? But then just a month or so later, if you run into the same eagle, this is what you're going to see. Let me see if we can just make this pop up. Just refresh that, Ronnie. It's coming. It looks like that anyway. Oh, well, we tried. Imagine the sleekest looking bald eagle you can possibly imagine. There he is. Look, perfect. Wonderful. Well done. The joys of technology right there. So you can forgive David and these other ancient writers, can't you, for um, believing that there was this process of renewal in the eagle's life where its youth was renewed. I mean, what other conclusion could you draw if you knew it was the same bird? And this is what David tells us it felt like in his own experience to have his desires satisfied. David, his experience of surrendering his desires to God was the very opposite of what happens to us when we let our desires run riot. Surrendering his desires to God put him back together. It made him back into what he was supposed to be. He refound his true shape. He refound his true beauty doing it God's way. And if we've known God for a little while, I guess we can thank God for that kind of experience in our own lives, can't we? I know I can. I can think of many situations where my sinful heart was urging me to uh, go one way and God's word was urging me to go the other way. And when I finally plucked up the good sense to go this way and go the way that God encouraged me, I discovered exactly this, that although the Bible tells us things that sound crazy on the outside, about dependence, about becoming less, telling us that all that glitters is not gold, those truths we find bring us back if we're prepared to actually embrace them. They bring us back to what we're supposed to be. They really satisfy when we actually dare to, to take God at his word. The places that God has led me sometimes kicking and screaming, telling him that I don't think he knows what he's doing, have been good for me in the end. The God who made our desires and whose desires our desires mirror knows what it takes to satisfy them. And looking back gives us the chance to thank him for it. So that's this first little part of the psalm here. Talking to himself. Do you see David challenge the forgetfulness and discouragement that he found himself experiencing in the first couple of verses? 
And when he did, he found that his discouragement was replaced by encouragement. He found that he didn't just have one or two things to thank God for. He had a lot. He found that God's promises were being fulfilled in his own life. God promised to bless, and here it is in David's own experience, line after line of it. And that discovery gets David ready for the next piece of the psalm here. Now, as we go along with it, we're going to find, rather like we did with Asaph in Psalm 73, that David has put a lot of thought into the structure of this psalm. And that should never surprise us when we're reading these biblical authors. They come from all sorts of different backgrounds, but in God's hands, all of them are literary master craftsmen. Their message that they want to teach us is not just in the words on the page, but in the way those words are put together. And that can't be more true than here in Psalm 103. The section that we've looked at so far, the first, uh, we're going to find that it's in three pieces. So the first third of it um, is all about David, isn't it? He starts by diagnosing discouragement and forgetfulness in his own soul. And then he preaches to himself, reminding himself about the good things that God has done for him. David, 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 David. But you see the switching gears now, now that we head into the next big section, the middle of the psalm that runs from verses 7 to 18. David is no longer preaching just to himself. He positions himself now with his community. He positions himself with the people of Israel. And now he leads them in preaching to themselves. Verses 3 to 5 are all about David's own soul. But verses 7 to 18 are all about the corporate soul of his people. So he says this kind of stuff. God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. You see that he suddenly moved it all there um, into the corporate uh, mode. Verse 6 marks the transition point between those two different parts of the psalm where David tells us the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. And you can see what he's doing here. He's partly summarizing what he's already said. Because that was his own experience, wasn't it? God worked righteousness and justice for him when he was oppressed. But verse 6 is also looking forward into this new, more corporate part of the psalm. Where David sees evidence of God's righteousness and justice uh, for the oppressed. Working out in one of the milestone events of Israel's history. The event is the, uh, the story of the golden calf. Which might not be immediately obvious in the psalm here, but you'll see it fairly clearly in a minute. Many of us know that story, don't we? Uh, And we've got a rough idea of where it sits in the unfolding narrative of the Bible. You remember that way back in Genesis 12, God made an extraordinary promise to Abraham. A promise that would define the future shape of all human history if we see things the way that the Bible does. From the wreckage of the world left by the fall, God promised to redeem a special people, to live in his special place, And to experience the blessing of his presence and his rule over them. And then to carry that blessing out to their neighbors and to the ends of the earth. God promised to remake Eden. That's what it was like at the start. God promised to take it back there. And after many, many long years of waiting, by the time we reach the golden calf story, we can see that God has proved himself to be really deadly serious about keeping this promise. The Israelites have become a great people. During their time of slavery in Egypt, God has redeemed them out of slavery by a blood sacrifice. They've experienced his presence in the pillar of cloud and fire that led them. 
And God had stepped back into their lives as the ruler through the Ten Commandments. So it looked like everything was now finally on track, didn't it? There were huge grounds for optimism that God was keeping all of his promises. But then immediately in Exodus 33, we hit, or Exodus 32, we hit um, the most kind of shocking, staggering low point. After all the waiting and after everything that God had done for them, the people of Israel blow it big time. When Moses went up the mountain to meet with God, they suddenly got an extreme case of spiritual vertigo down on the ground. Oh no, we're in the desert. We're miles from anywhere. Our leader has disappeared. Our hope for the future is completely dependent on a pillar of cloud. Like, what in the world are we going to do? It's depressing, isn't it? Because they're so like us. Instead of sitting tight and trusting, they tried to take control. They tried to build up their own security. They made themselves a god, a golden calf, out of all the gold that they brought with them out of Egypt. And when Moses came down the mountain and he saw what had happened, he threw the Ten Commandments out of his hands and smashed them against a rock. And it seemed like everything was over. Like the whole journey of God keeping his promises over all those hundreds of years had been sabotaged and derailed by the faithlessness of the people that he'd chosen. But then something strange happened. God did not abandon them. His presence remained with them. In Exodus 33, verse 13, Moses came before God, clearly confused, saying, teach me your ways. Like, what in the world is this about? And then in Exodus 34, verse 6, after summoning Moses back up the mountain to receive all new stone tablets, God responded, reintroducing himself like this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And those two verses are the verses that David now quotes in our psalm. Do you see that? He made known his ways to Moses, exactly as Moses asked him to, his deeds to the people of Israel. And then the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. So what's David doing? Well, just as he did with his own past experiences in the first part of the psalm, now he's taking his people back into their corporate past experience, reminding them about the benefits they have known of walking with God. And he does it by taking them into these two verses in Exodus and kind of meditating on them. And he reviews them and he considers them and he plays a kind of creative riff off them uh, to create actually one of the most beautiful declarations of God's goodness in the whole Bible. He starts by focusing on the first of those two quotes from Exodus, from the golden calf story. The Lord made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. What thoughts did that verse spark in David's mind? Newly energized as he is from uh, taking himself through a, a kind of audit of all of the blessings he had received. Well, it made him think, man, the ways that God made known to Moses were most unexpected. Moses was surely thinking this was kind of thank you and good night for all the good promises that God had made. And yet look at it. Moses was invited back up the mountain. And when he returned to the sinful, ungrateful, forgetful people that um, had uh, walked away from God, he had new stone tablets, a physical manifestation of the fact that if God's people break his covenant, God still will not And that just makes David cry out in praise. And he says he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, 
so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. David realizes what's going on here. He realizes that something extraordinary has happened. By committing himself to his people, God has brought something from the world that he inhabits, the world of infinites and absolutes, into the finite world that we inhabit. By committing himself to us and saying always to us, irrespective of our limitations or failures, God has given us the chance to experience something that is truly not of this earth. What is it? Infinite forgiveness. That's what's going on in the golden calf story. That's why it feels so strange when we read it. Because we're expecting the story to end right there. We're expecting the fulfillment of God's promises to come to a shuddering halt. It's the Garden of Eden all over again, isn't it? And we're expecting the people to be thrown out. But they aren't. We're expecting a blow that never falls. Because infinite, unconditional forgiveness has broken into the world. And that's our reality too. I wonder, do you know that today? Have you grasped that fact? Even if you look back on your own life and you see kind of golden calf experiences in your own past. Because God has entered the story. Because God has stepped into human life and broken out the checkbook from the bank account of divinity. And brought all of his resources to bear on the problem of human sin by offering himself as a sacrifice to pay for it. Every consequence of our thanklessness and unconcern and all the pain that we have inflicted on other people is completely exhausted. If we accept this offer of forgiveness, we are free. Nobody puts it better than David, the way he captures the reality of that, the sensation of the weight of it all being gone and kind of floating up into the sky like a bird. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. But all David has done so far is just explore the first of these two verses in Exodus. So now he moves on to the second. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Remember, those words record the way that God reintroduced himself to Moses at the, after the Israelites' failure with the, with the golden calf. God starts, doesn't he, by describing his compassion, and he ends by describing his love. And so, in verses 13 to 18 of the psalm, David does exactly the same thing. He starts by thinking about God's compassion, and then ends by thinking about his love. And once again, he takes time to review it and consider it and uh, play a creative riff off it to lead his people in praise and thanksgiving. He's trying to show us here how to read the Bible, just to camp on a verse of it and then turn it over in our minds and turn it into praise and worship. David really gives us the model here. So in verse 13, we see him thinking about God's compassion. And that reminds David that God is a father. And this is a really amazing thing for him to write because we're super familiar with this idea now, aren't we? Because of the way that Jesus camps on it in the New Testament. You know, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus is all over the idea that we are children of God. But in the Old Testament, there are actually very few places where we get this clear of an insight into God's willingness to be a father to every person who believes in him. 
Psalm 73, actually, that we had a couple of weeks ago with that powerful image of living our lives with our hands in God's own hand. That's one of the few others. Maybe that's the reason why I ended up picking these two together because they both have that amazing emphasis. But they're rare and they're important because of that. Because these verses kind of set the paradigm for what the fatherhood of God looks like that Jesus then comes to fulfill. And what does that paradigm look like? David tells us that it's all about compassion. Compassion is the defining characteristic of the fatherhood of God. Now David knows, of course, that our own human parenting does not live up to that. He knows it from his own experience. He knows that as parents, sadly, we often respond to our uh, children's childishness with impatience and frustration instead of compassion. But that's not his point here. David wants us to see that God doesn't share our parental limitations. God looks at the way that um, uh, God looks at us the way that we should look at our children. He knows and respects what we are and what we aren't. He never asks us to do something that's beyond our abilities. He knows how we are formed, says David. He remembers that we're just dust. And there's a good reason why God knows that, because he was there. (laughs) He is our maker. He formed us out of the dust of the earth. So he has perfect visibility on our strengths and weaknesses as a result, doesn't he? It's true that we can transcend the limitations experienced by much of creation. Human beings live and move and feel and dream. We do extraordinary things. But we're still made out of the same essential stuff that every other physical thing is made out of. And so we're still subject to the same physical constraints. God has brought physical life to such a point of perfection in human beings uh, that through it we can experience a kind of simulation of the divine life. But if we're not actually connected and plugged in to the actual divine life, if all we have is physical, then physical constraints will get the better of us in the end. Our physical fallibility will cut the legs out from underneath our spiritual uh, aspirations. The wind will blow over us and we'll be gone. Without God, the physical world will ultimately treat our pretensions to spiritual life with contempt. But with God, our faltering efforts to stand and to walk and to speak spiritually are treated with compassion, not contempt. And that's where David sees the Father's love. Because without him, we are like grass. It's horrible to see it, isn't it? I don't know whether you've been through that, watching someone that you know or love withering and dying knowing that there's something significant in there, something primed for eternity, but it just isn't connected. It can't survive on its own when the physical system that supports it returns to the dust. That was my grandfather. But what David tells us here is that just a touch of the love of God can change that in a moment completely. It enables us to find the solid ground that will support and sustain us from everlasting to everlasting. The love of God is the thing that changes the game here, isn't it? Without it, in the end, our place will remember us no more. But with it, there's an eternal hope for us and for our children's children. Why does the love of God change the game so radically? Well, David only saw the answer to that question very dimly in the future. 
His hope rested on the obscure words spoken to him by the prophet Samuel when he first came to the throne. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. But today we have the privilege of seeing the fulfillment of those words in the pages of the New Testament. We have the hope that God's love will indeed be with us from everlasting to everlasting. Because 2,000 years ago, the Son of God himself strode onto the stage and lovingly laid down his own right to everlasting security so that we might enjoy it to make that connection that snatches us out of the limitations of the physical world. Because he loved us, the everlasting destiny of the promised king became the everlasting hope of the people who were in his kingdom. And that great hope gets David ready for one last great transition here. I said that this psalm was in three pieces, and we're going to come to the third one now. Remember at the start, David realized that in his own soul, he was struggling to remember the benefits of knowing God. And so he talked to himself. He took himself in hand. He forced himself to reflect on the good things that God had done in his life. And that changed things for David, didn't it? Right there. Talking to himself brought him out of that place of introspection and discouragement to a place where he was ready to look uh, at the people around him and to encourage them. Encouraging them to remember the great things that God had done for them as a group. But now as we reach the end of the psalm, do you see that leading other people in praise has made David and the people around him ready for one last big jump? They're ready now to shake off corporate introspection and discouragement and to do the very thing that they were made for. They're ready now to be God's ambassadors in creation. They're ready to join arms and turn out and up to the watching audience, to the powers and authorities that fill the stands around this great pitch of the earth, as we learned in Ephesians 6 just a few weeks ago, and to shout back the truth about God and who God is and what he's doing here to anyone and anything that can listen. Just as verse 6 formed the bridge between the personal focus of the, the first part of the psalm, where David was talking to his own soul, and then the more corporate focus of the second part of the psalm, Now verse 19 does the same job for us here, moving us from the corporate focus of the middle of the psalm through now to this cosmic focus of the final part. When David said, the Lord established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all, he's reminding us where our hope as a people comes from. On the corporate level, we look forward, don't we now, to an everlasting future with God because his promises to his people did not fail. The king came. His kingdom was established. But this also points us upwards and outwards to this kind of cosmic purpose for which we were rescued. We were rescued so that we could step back into the role that we were made for, to make the name and the goodness of God known to the ends of the earth. And so David and his people now sing, praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. So do you see what's happened as we've gone through this psalm? 
David seems so weak in verses 1 and 2, didn't he? Persuading himself to go back and reflect on the good things that God had done for him because he was right on the point of forgetting them. And maybe we can relate to that sense of weakness. Maybe we don't feel half so close to God as we once did. Maybe God doesn't seem to be answering our prayers. Maybe we're wondering if we really are Christians at all. But do you see what the simple act of turning around and talking to himself did to David? It was like striking a feeble little match under a Saturn V rocket on the launch pad. As he counted his blessings one by one, God transformed this discouraged and isolated man into an encourager of others. And as he encouraged others, God transformed him and the people around him into worship leaders for the whole audience of creation. And the thing went up into orbit. He ends the psalm with the same words that he used to begin it. Praise the Lord, my soul. But the motive behind them has changed now, hasn't it? At the start, it was just raw faith clinging on, acting, even though the feelings behind that acting were just not there. David was preaching to himself, stirring himself up, taking himself in hand, taking responsibility. But now at the end, when he uses those words again, it's as if he's saying, wow, I want to do that again. Praise the Lord, my soul. Look at what it does to you when you actually do it. And that's his encouragement to us this morning. Because this is a rocket that God wants to launch in our own lives if we will only follow in David's footsteps and pray in his prayer steps. If we will only take responsibility for our own walk with God and make time to lead ourselves and others in praise. God will make us uh, equipped to fulfill our created purpose that we would declare the wonders of his goodness and grace to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it feels that we're kind of acting above our pay grade here to just this ordinary and less than ordinary group of people here to turn our eyes towards the watching audience of angels and authorities in heaven. And yet we know that that's what you have brought us to do. And so we do. We, we say, hey, look, here in this little spot in Grand Rapids, there's a room full of people who want to say, bless God for his goodness in our lives of his goodness in our world. And we pray, Jesus, that you might work in each one of us, work in our hearts, work in us individually. Lead us, strengthen us to take ourselves in hand. Lord, that that determination to bless you for your goodness to us and then to encourage others to do the same and then to come together and to declare to the world, whoever is there to watch, just how good you are, how good it is to know you, Lord, that that might be fulfilled in us that as a church, that we might really move the needle here in your world. Lord, through that power, you're working in us, encouraging us, leading us to praise you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.